Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Good morning, April. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. You and I have been swapping messages and uh, talking about doing some collaboration and stuff uh, probably for the last several months and haven't pulled things together. And I'm sure I've dropped the ball a couple of times on my (laughs) scheduling. I, I, I think I'm usually the one who's the least organized. And then even this morning, I'm late because of my dumb cat. I'm sitting on my technology, so I apologize. But I am delighted to have you on here this morning, April. Um, you have shared with me that you got some things going on. Um, and uh, and I just, I'm just looking forward to this conversation. But before we dive into that conversation, wherever it's going to go, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Happy to do it. Good morning. Uh, we're here. We made it. April Walker. I hail originally from Baltimore, Maryland, where all my family is. So shout out to them. But I spent a good chunk of time, about six years or so in Chicago, uh, where I earned a master's in social service administration from the University of Chicago and also have an academic background in sociology. Um, From a professional standpoint, I've been in philanthropy for about 10 years. And so that's meant cycling in and out of either fundraising, grant making or consulting positions, uh, including roles at CCS fundraising, the American Heart Association, Boys and Girls Clubs of Chicago, and then most recently as chief development officer for an employment services nonprofit in Cleveland, Ohio. But after about two and a half years in that role, I decided I wanted to do my own thing. And so I launched my own consultancy. It's called Philanthropy for the People, where I am centering equity and specifically racial equity in, in this great work. So both in fundraising and in grant making. That's a little bit about me. Big Baltimore Ravens fan. So shout out to my team there. If there are any 
sports fans who listen in. Um, but yeah, 10 years in the field um, and a lover of all things philanthropy, equity, and social justice. So I think you're the first person. This I, I, I ought to be completely ashamed. So I live an hour north of Baltimore. I travel in and out of BWI every week to get to my clients. I don't think I've had... I don't think I've had a Baltimore conversation. <laughs> in, I mean, we're creeping up on 300 episodes here. Um, and it doesn't sound like you've done a lot of fundraising in Baltimore, but maybe you have. D- d- I don't know that I've ever asked the question. I mean, what is, do you know anything about fundraising in Baltimore enough to sort of speak on it? That's a great question. And so your your instinct is right. I have not done any fundraising right. in Baltimore. <laughs> I was a student. I was a child. And then yeah. I left the, the city to go to different places. Um, I will say, you know, I was a part of the independent private school community in Baltimore. And so I sort of grew up knowing that there is great wealth, old money, lots of resources. (laughs) Tuition at the school I attended was a solid $25,000 a year. I did not pay that. My family could not afford that. And yet I had access to it and exposure to it. So my worldview from an early age sort of offered me a different insight, but I've never actively done any fundraising in my beloved charm city. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, uh, yeah, so we live in, we live in York County, Pennsylvania, and mm. we're a small county just north of, you know, yeah, just across the state line in Pennsylvania. The southern end of our county is basically a bedroom community for Baltimore. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, when I was more involved in our redevelopment efforts downtown here in York, um, I remember being part of conversations about uh, you know how do we get those those folks that really don't even know that they're in the state of Pennsylvania to see, be more oriented towards you know how do we get them to come down to our Strand Theater rather than going into Baltimore for shows mm-hmm. et cetera et cetera. So April, we invite our guests to come on here with a big idea, bold opinion. Um, and I have to say that when you're inviting fundraisers to when you extend that invitation to fundraisers. Um, there's never any shortage of opinions and it usually, uh, the bolder and the bigger, the idea or opinion, the better, uh, for a conversation. What do you got for us this morning? Yeah, I love the frame. You know, my, my opinion is largely one that philanthropy has an intentionally distant relationship with truth telling, um, radical truth telling, authentic truth telling, has a very hard time finding its way in this field, um, especially for fundraisers. And I know a number of fundraisers who have to often choose between telling the truth or getting the grant, (laughs) getting the grant or working with the donor and telling the truth. And so that's a very challenging dichotomy to have day in and day out. Um, And what we saw in 2020 and what we're still seeing with the Great Resignation though economists might differ on what's happening with the number of people leaving and exiting the workforce, is that fundraisers especially are burnt out. And not just burnt out, but I would say really bruised by the lack of authenticity in this field and almost an obsession in many ways with jargon, an obsession with paying lip service to, we care about this mission, we care about this idea, but you're not actually going to engage the community. We want to know what you're doing from an equity standpoint, but you don't actually plan to follow up or be accountable on your own. And so that to me is just the truth of what I see both for fundraisers and grant makers. Okay. So we got to unravel. So we're going to, we're going to split that right down the middle. There's the first half of your uh, big, big opinion, big, big idea. And there's a second half. I, and I, and, and I think I can keep this going. Uh, I think we can keep it organized that way. I'm not much of a linear thinker and maybe you're not either. Um, but um, philanthropy has a very distant relationship with truth telling. Un- unpack that for us. Just unravel that. Cause I know, I think I know where you're going, but um, yeah, unravel that one. Yeah. So from a fundraising standpoint, in so many ways you have fundraisers who were taught to exercise the same functions, the same approach. The more time the word you appears in your solicitation letter, the better. The If you pull it, the heartstrings, great. So you're coming out of, maybe you've gotten your CFRE. If you're coming out of that program, that certification, you've been trained in a specific way. Um, so much of that is not rooted in truth or impact. It's rooted in literally the transaction of a charitable gift. Um So how the truth shows up, no one's ever really telling you how to report on, hey, this thing didn't work. (laughs) 
we failed here. We want to try this big idea. Um, so those conversations are, are not always welcome. That innovation is not always made space for. Um, and so when we do see it, or even in 2020, when we saw people needing to be really truthful about what was happening in this moment. And so for me saying 2020 is really just a, an umbrella term for the murder of George Floyd and then the racial reckoning that was not on the other side of it. So that's what I mean when I say that. Um, but we saw people, individuals needing to tell their truth about what was happening in this moment. Like, hey, I'm, I'm a little tired here. Here, and the system that I feel like I'm a part of with this whole fundraising philanthropy thing is broken. And there was a little bit of a response to that, but there were more headlines than there was actual impact. There was more people saying, we're going to do X, Y, and Z and give you a lot more money. And then you peel back one layer of the onion and that wasn't the reality. Okay. You're, you've got a, so I'm working on this book project. Everybody who listens to the podcast knows I'm working on this thing. And everybody knows that I'm trying to dismantle this early 20th century notion that fundraising has has sort of adopted for itself or inherited from PR marketing and advertising. And that is the donor as consumer paradigm. Mm, mm-hmm. If you think about the donor as consumer paradigm, essentially you get at that why truth telling is so hard because no consumer really gets the truth. I mean, is that essentially what you're getting at? I would say so. So I haven't uh, heard about <laughs> your focus, but I would say so. You know, I can crank out two or three end of year appeals using the essential same format. None of that is really the story here. None of that is talking about the culture of what it's actually like to work at a nonprofit. Have you talked to any nonprofit staff lately? (laughs) I mean, outside of the administrators, outside of your managers, have you talked to the actual people doing the actual work? Yeah. That is the core of this. Have you yes. talked to the families that are adjacent to these missions, like the mothers and the grandmothers and the community members and the whoever else? That to me is the heart of it. And we're so far from that reality. We're we're so um we're stuck in the system of presenting this in a way that we understand generates dollars. And so great. Maybe that has a a, a, a benefit. But I also think we're doing ourselves a disservice by continuing to sort of stay stuck in that uh, on that wheel. Does it, so the, the, the argument I'm making in the forth, forthcoming book is that it basically lets us down. Um, mm. You know, when you think about being a consumer, eventually you get at the place where whatever whatever shit you end up buying, it sort of eventually <laughs> just lets you down, right? Mm-hmm. And so so there's all these sort of promises, whatever whatever junk I go and buy at Walmart or Target this afternoon might sort of convince me of something, but mm. eventually it lets me down. And I mean, is that sort of the embedded critique that you're sort of making when you're saying that there's a disconnect between philanthropy. That's brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. There's a disconnect between telling the truth and what philanthropy really is because isn't, isn't April philanthropy almost supposed to want to and gravitate towards And like I had a, I had a board member once who said that the work that we do in the nonprofit sector, he was referring to our organization in particular should be going to the hard places. Mm. Well, if you don't tell the world that you're in those hard places, if you're not telling them the truth because you make it look all warm and fuzzy and wrap it with 12 layers of cotton or something. Yeah. Is that what you're getting at? That's what I'm getting at. You know, (laughs) I, we had to go on the road together. <laughs> I think so. You think about board members, right? And I've met some great ones. You see some really engaged folks um, wanting to give back and wanting to be charitable. And I've learned to truly celebrate that generosity because if you've done any type of fundraising for any measure of time, you've learned that there are some people that simply, to your point, don't give a shit, like are not interested in giving a penny away, yes. are not going to give back. That's just not who they are. So I've truly yeah. learned to appreciate and like my favorite part of this thing is celebrating gratitude. It's so easy to say thank you. And I truly mean it every time I say it. But then I also learned that if you have a board member, say who's been on the board a couple decades couple years even they get very married to the narrative that they're convinced of (laughs) and so in some cases it doesn't matter what type of training or script I provide they still default to what they think this thing is and and in a lot of ways maybe I've also encouraged that right because you present to your board you present to your volunteers 
what you want them to see and you want them to see a win. You want them to see success. So that means they come for a site visit and you've given everybody a heads up. It doesn't mean they come and they see the overflowing toilet. It doesn't mean that they see the steady stream of people coming into my office who are tearful because they're just overworked. And that is really the the weight of it, right? That's what I'm carrying, trying to pivot from, okay, let me pass some tissues over here and then go back and get this grant money. It's a very interesting world to live in. Um, and you and I don't want to paint an entirely sort of cynical picture, Jason. I do have I do have a, a heart we like, here. We like to we like to do that. Here. We're but, okay with that. You know, but we've got to somebody has to be a critic. I, every, yeah. every domain, every domain that's worth its weight in gold has to have critics. And so that's what we get on here is we look at this from a critical point of view. So don't back down. I, I'm glad to not, because if I had a dollar, if I had 50 cents for every fundraiser that has called me, reached out to me in the past year, just been like, I am so tired. I cannot do this. And I had a friend who I had been paying a lot of lip service to saying, hey, maybe we need a culture change here. Maybe we need evaluation. Maybe we need some kind of external survey. I had a dear friend who's also a fundraiser reach out to me. She was upset. She said, April, everybody here is sad and crying. And I was like, voila, (laughs) that is the story. That is what I'm trying to communicate about what it's like for some staff, some administrators, some program officers to be in there, to be doing their work. And we're trying to fundraise for this thing that we know at the core is there's, there's no morale here. There's no gumption here. And everything about it needs to be revamped. You need better benefits. You need higher salaries. You need better working conditions. You need laptops. You needed that long before the pandemic. You don't need a laptop that you got April of 2020 that might've been refurbished. So it's really, it was sort of shaking up all of that within this year. Um, I had drawn this conclusion long ago, but I do think the pandemic, if there is one of a few silver linings from it, has really helped elucidate that for folks, which is why you see people shifting. Um, And it's really flipping hard. And you can let me know if this is your experience as well for people to find development directors right now. It's hard to find development staff who are going to stick this thing out because we understand when you're that proximate to white supremacy, when you're that proximate to people who will give you a donation and at the same time offend your core, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. tell you they see you, but then they don't see you. Yeah, you've got to weigh the cost of that, and so yeah, yeah I'll, I'll pause and let you. I see you thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been wrestling with. So I've been working on this project, as I've said. And I'm a white guy, and I can, I can hold, are you totally? Yeah, I'm a white guy. <laughs> and I totally own that. But I've been wrestling with this with this notion that, I, and this is what we can banter with for a few moments. I don't know if fundraising in particular. So I don't de- I don't deny that that the that our greater culture, right, sort of mm-hmm. wrestles with this idea of white supremacy and and the fact that my fellow fellas from for several gen- for generations upon generations have sort of run the world and perhaps certainly rightfully should not have been doing so and had such a privilege and et cetera et cetera et cetera. Um I'll jump on that 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 uh, soapbox <laughs> at another time. But I don't know that I'm convinced that white supremacy is so layered into what we do as I think consumerism is. Hmm. And maybe they're one and the same. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe because it was a bunch of old white guys in the mid, you know, middle of 20th century and early 20th century. We think about the Industrial Revolution. And when we go back to the Enlightenment, it was still a bunch of white guys. So, I mean, maybe they're maybe they go hand in hand. Right. Um, but I don't know. If I think that if we really gave a really hardcore critique of what fundraising is sort of suffering from is the sort of the so so what do you think about that? Is it just is it are we just basically saying is it do they just sort of work together because it's 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 almost like consumer. Yeah, maybe I'm convincing myself of this that that consumerism that I think has inf- infiltrated our entire economy or just our whole freaking worldview, the way we see the world which was a construction largely of old white guys. (laughs) I can see, yeah, this is my first time sort of hearing the the concept and the narrative of consumerism's intersection with fundraising. And I think there's a merit there. I'd be hard pressed to eliminate white supremacy from the conversation, but I understand 
the sales, you know, I've said it to people, I'm, I'm a sales person <laughs> in a yeah, lot of yeah. ways. When you're doing certain fundraising functions, sponsorships, et cetera, right? You're, you're pitching, you're selling something. Um, but the whiteness of wealth, the legacy of the whiteness of wealth in this country cannot be eliminated from these conversations, right? And so when we see organizations now suddenly trying to take an interest in, oh, donors of color, or diverse donors, which is just the dumbest way to put it. Um, don't you know? Let let's have this conversation and let's acknowledge yeah. that we should be that there are people who might want to give that don't look like us. It's it's so it's so loose. It is so flimsy. And and Tyrone McKinley Freeman can explain much better oh, he was than on I. Here last week, he beautiful. was on here last week. So you, you're literally writing. So he's he's on the podcast last week. So Excellent. this this up this, this the, when this broadcast he was. On on here last week and i asked him the question april so you follow up on this question when somebody says to you how do i appeal to people of color we'll do that phrase you've probably been asked that a numerous times and i asked him the same question it sounds like there because and again i'm coming from this critique that fundraising has been infiltrated by pr marketing and advertising mm-hmm. it sounds like they're damn asking for an for an algorithm yeah. like tr- you're basically saying you want to get in inside my head it has nothing to do with my gender my ethnicity where i come from my life experiences it's just you want to turn me into an algorithm which is the same thing you did to the white people <laughs> it's just i'm the i'm the audience that you're trying to market to today i mean is that basically what the question is when they ask that that is you know <laughs> i'll actually give some credit to the people asking that question because i've i've come across people that won't even ask Right, they don't even right. have space for a conversation that yeah. donors of color exist, or that there's black wealth, or that there are people that will give you any type of support of their time, treasure, talent, whatever. Yeah. But for those who are asking the question, yes, they're absolutely, from my experience, trying to fit a more diverse donor pipeline into this already sort of structured way of doing things. This more maybe it's relational, maybe it's transactional, but this existing way of philanthropy. And what I know to be yeah. true about the community that I grew up a part of, again, young woman from Baltimore, Maryland, <clears throat> had, you know, great education, but that was by virtue of scholarships and financial aid. Um, sure. Been black my whole life, don't plan to change that. So, <laughs> but what I know to be true is that I grew up rooted in generosity, seeing it in church, whether it's tithing, or just seeing how people show up for one another, and seeing how you show up at all times when you're called to if it's with a plate, if it's with an ear. And so generosity to me was not a new concept, but I certainly have been privy to the ways in which we're excluded from, you know, your galas, your whatever events are happening at country clubs. If I had a, again, if I had a dollar, one of my favorite phrases, for every time someone invited me to a country club and thought that I wanted to come. I mean, it's just fascinating the disconnect that people uh, bring to the work. You know, that's not how you engage across the board. But I would I would agree with your sort of assessment that, yes, it's a matter of trying to fit in. Oh, there are all these black and brown and whatever people who were sitting dormant and not giving because we just haven't acknowledged them. Mm, the story's a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. We've and always, what, yeah. And that's what I loved about, uh, uh, and I shared this with Tyrone when he was on the podcast. That's what I loved about reading his book because he's telling that narrative. He's telling that story about Walker and Booker T and he's talking about the way that 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 exchange of gifts happened at the beginning of the 20th century and I'm like wait a minute all of our fundraising wizards who had white people on their boards and they were they all the all the fundraising wizards that get written into the history are old white guys. They're these PR, basically PR professionals. And I'm saying to Tyrone, why aren't these people sort of written into the narrative in the history of fundraising? And why isn't that story a Booker T? It never would have occurred to me until I read uh, Tyrone's book. It never would have occurred to me, and it probably should have because he was running the T- Tuskegee Institute, that, that, he, that he was raising money. Mm-hmm. And he was navigating he had a bunch of, you know, he had Carnegie and some others on his board. So he was navigating old white wealth, but he was also navigating people like Walker. Yeah. Um, who was, who was saying, I'm going to sort of insist on a much more, a different type of relationship with you. Um, I'm not going to give like Carnegie's giving to you. Um, and so he really got me stirred up there. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to go back to, I want to go back to a comment. You, I want to go back to the very, very starting, the way you sort of teed this up. I want to pick on this idea of storytelling because mm-hmm. everybody in our fundraising space, like everybody flocked to the storytelling conference in San, uh, San Diego a couple of weeks ago. And I wonder if there's a, 
I read a book recently that talked about how storytelling in and of itself isn't always true. And we like to tell ourselves stories. And think about that donor that you were describing a few minutes ago. You were talking about sort of the, the well, you were describing the sort of the painful messiness of sort of working in, 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 a, in a nonprofit shop that's under-resourced, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, and the lousy computers and stuff. <laughs> we oftentimes sit in front of our donors and we tell them stories, but I don't think our, our donors actually believe them as much as we believe them. Hmm. Say more about that in terms of, are you thinking yeah. like a, go ahead. It's a narrative. It's a narrative that we. Uh, so Charles Taylor, a, a, a philosopher in Canada, talks about uh, social imaginary. So we live inside. And, and actually, Tyrone and I were talking about this moral imagination, and the two concepts sort of interrelate to each other. It's the idea that we actually live in a story, a collectively shared story. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that you, you know, so if we take the social imaginary and we attach it to the. To, to your notion of sort of bringing truth telling into the, the, there's a story that we in the fundraising community tell ourselves and it's not on an individual level, but it's a collective level. And what you're adding to that light, what you're layering into there is that we're not telling ourselves a true story. And so we walk around and we think that our donors actually believe the bullshit that we're telling them. And so we sell them, mm-hmm. we sell them this narrative, whatever the narrative is, and then my question is, April, is it, does it undermine actually the level of support and the commitment that they make to the organization? Because they can actually see right through it. Because just, and I guess, forgive me for looping back to consumerism, but you can see through this stuff. Right. And so you're sitting there in front of this donor, black, white, or otherwise, mm-hmm. and you're giving her this pitch. And she can see right through it. And so she's going to give you that go-away gift that makes you basically leave her alone, but makes you feel good about what you're doing. Is you that know, what's happening? I, I, <laughs> I agree that there's there. a, listen, I've been there, but I also think that I've allowed myself to believe the story because I needed some modicum of sanity, right? I yeah, needed sure. something to keep me grounded in the midst of whatever the hell is going on here, right? In the yeah, midst of yeah. your tearful colleagues, in the midst of sort of like something is, why is everybody in the administration white and all the program staff black? You need something to hold on to. Like maybe there's a, a, a thread of good here, a fabric yeah. of not terribleness here. Um yeah. And that is simply not enough, or at least I've decided it's not enough for me. I have explained my sort of um, proximity to the community-centric fundraising movement as one in which that's where I I went to get rejuvenated. That's where I went to sort of be amongst my people that were all like, are you seeing this? Like, this is a mess. But it wasn't (laughs) how I was doing 80 to 90% of my job. When I turned off whatever sort of opportunity or whatever collective moment we were having and I went back to my work, it was still very much like if so-and-so calls this phone and wants my time because they're a major donor, I'm going to give it to them. It was still very much pivoting to wherever the dollars told me to be at that time, which is a different frame in which saying, what is the actual core of the work? How can I best serve the people and the mission? Those are two different approaches to that. Um, so to your point, yeah, you, you believe what you need to, to survive. Um, and, and listen, so black people have been co-switching for as long as time. And that's not actually a bad thing. Um, we've been existing in predominantly white spaces, many of us for quite a while as well. Again, not necessarily a bad thing, but it does cost you something to believe that story. And so I'm of no, I'm I'm not mincing words about the fact that there's healing that I have to do by virtue of being a frontline fundraiser, by virtue of being, you know, sort of the face of a nonprofit development and marketing team that I feel like is putting lipstick on a pig, right? Where I feel like my integrity is being called into question, where I feel like I'm just simply not doing well, as well as I could. We don't want to talk about the truth here. That's expensive. So it's really expensive to believe that story. At least it was for me as a, as a Black woman navigating these spaces. And I, it just costs too much. And I think maybe that's not everyone's experience. It was mine. And I know it to be true of the number of people that reach out to me and say, oh, where have you been? Like, <laughs> I'm glad someone is speaking up about this. I wrote a piece for community-centric fundraising about, you know, what can we do to keep Black women in the sector? Yeah. And nine of the 10 answers were to 
leave us alone. Like, give us some space. <laughs> it's such a crowding and a policing of how we show up to do this work and a silencing of, you know, the example I can get from my previous job. We are in a under-resourced, predominantly, entirely Black community in Cleveland, Ohio. The management team is entirely white. The pipeline of managers and directors, entirely white. The board of directors, nearly entirely white. And no one else seems to think this is an issue except for me. Yeah. That is it's it's a heavy weight to carry, right? But keep in mind, Jason, I've also been a program officer. I've represented foundations. I've showed up, you know, to nonprofits with the ability to say, yes, you'll get fifty or sixty thousand or whatever, or no, you won't. And I've been looked at as if I was a member that they were a client that they were serving. Yeah. So having seen every side of this coin, <laughs> it's just um the stories I think are deep because I would venture that fundraiser funders grant makers are telling themselves a narrative as well they're telling themselves a narrative about how far their dollars can go how impactful their dollars will be how much their dollars matter to nonprofits and that they have a right to even position and act certain things of their nonprofit partners by virtue of whatever resources many of them have inherited okay so let's say for example let's let's totally embrace everything you just said and let's embrace. So my my listeners routinely hear me saying that I think fundraising, unlike a lot of professional sort of domains out there in the world, is in what I call its messy adolescence. Mm-hmm. So it's basically in high school, right? So it's not like a mature, it's not a mature space like some of these others that we that we would necessarily hold things against nearly as hard. We we, we just we're just saying it's a it's like a bunch of high school students running around with a bunch of insecurities and hasn't haven't got their shit together and don't know how to relate to the world and carries a bunch of ideas from other domains, et cetera, et cetera. And so for one of the like the idea of sort of putting lipstick on a pig, when I think of the African American women that I'm that I'm periodically talking to if we let if we let that cohort of women step into this at, at a time when we're in our messy adolescence, right? I've worked with African American women, for example. Are is is your cohort of women that are sort of that you're I know you're a part of more likely to tell that truth than perhaps a bunch of white guys that are out there as major gifts officers, and that therefore you can have a you can what what i'm suggesting is is that fundraising's at a different place in its own collective professional development hmm. than these other domains where you might could perhaps be in april does that make sense it like makes if you were sense. a physician if you were in a physician your your experience as a black woman might be very different and very and, and not quite as timely as it could be here in fundraising because i think we're more impressionable does that make sense it makes sense. I understand the the framing. I would say it makes sense, sense, except for the fact that fundraising is very has a proximity to you know continue to quote Brian Stevenson's work in terms of getting yep, proximate to what you that. want to solve. Yep. Um, fundraisers fundraising has a proximity to social justice and social impact in a way that others don't. So there's an intentional sort of pivoting away that I see instead of a pivoting yeah. towards, and so to not okay, utilize them. Yeah, but that's us, isn't it? That's, are you going to pivot away? I get, I get what you, I've had who's going to do I've had to, to raise certain dollars. Absolutely. If I let you do, if I let you do your job your way, are you mm-hmm. going to pivot away? Or are you going to take, are you going to, are you going to take that proximity that you're talking about? Stevenson's talking about Tyrone walks right about it in his book. Mm-hmm. It certainly takes more than us. And I like to be mindful that the positioning and the liberation of Black women is not tied to our additional labor. So I love to see our appointments and I love to see our professional, you know, accolades lauded. I do not celebrate additional work on our backs because many Mm -hmm. of these things were solved and written about decades ago. Shout out to James Baldwin and Bell Hooks and Audre Lloyd and... Lord and Octavia Butler. So these are not new things. 
my example from my previous position is a prime one. If it was, if it only took me to look towards it, it would have been a different situation. But I'm trying to encourage a slew of people to look with me. You know, I'm saying, hey, guys, this thing matters. This is happening over here. I was not interested in, in sort of divulging or um, divesting myself of the core of what I saw happening here, of the people being served. It's a lot of work to do that for myself, keep myself healthy and whole. Yeah. Educate and inform my colleagues that this thing is an option for them because it's an option because they've chosen to not do it. And then continue to try and compel people to do it as well. That's a lot of additional work. Nobody's paying me for that. Like That's a lot of additional yeah, yeah. emotional and spiritual energy spent on top of actually, you know, supervising a team of fundraisers and planning events and social media, whatever the other nuts and bolts and functions of the job were. Those things always pale in comparison to the the other labor that is placed upon us. So, sure, black women in who choose to choose to lean into this work because not everyone does might have more of an opportunity to um help bridge that gap or acknowledge the adolescence of the sector. But I don't support additional labor for us in that way. So let's put that in. Let's put that in some more practical terms, like how you test. So let's say we're talking to an African-American woman who works for a, a children's hospital in Chicago or something, or no, let's, let's actually, actually put her in a, one. <laughs> let's actually talk about us. I want to talk about a smaller shop. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about a smaller shop. I think you've got, I think, I think there's a young I think there's a young woman who's listening to our conversation today that needs to be told by essentially by you and me both stop allowing your job description to be descri- be defined by things like special events. Just let's just talk real practically mm, here. Mm-hmm. Just don't let them put special event planning on your job description yeah. and you might change the dynamic of what it is you do and consequently you might actually change the value the value with which your your boss and your board sees the role and the the meaningfulness that you contribute to the organization. And and and, and we're and folks we're just inserting special events because it just happens to be one of those sort of stayed um uh it, it it's a it's a holding it, it never leaves the job description right. you follow what i'm saying <laughs> absolutely absolutely i would underline and emphasize and underscore that entirely you know you can work yourself to the bone thinking about sponsorships and thinking about your signage and thinking about you know the program flow and who will be your keynote or you can think about the community that you're building, or you yes. can think about the the reach that you're having. You can think yeah. about the the platform that you can give to celebrate someone, not exploit them. That's a very different way to show up and sit down. You're having an event or you're supporting a movement. <laughs> you're throwing an event or you're being a force for this change that you know is critical and timely and really urgent. Um, the latter is where I find energy. The latter is where I find the spirit of what I'm doing, where I find fundraisers who care just a hell of a lot. You've got to be a little bit weird to end up in this job. So many of us land here just by virtue of our the way our careers develop. You do have people, God bless them, who were always interested in fundraising and have come up through the ranks and wanted to do that. For those of us whose past were, I just fell here. And it made sense because I was a strong writer, a strong communicator, can build relationships. Well, we also chose to stay and we chose to stay because there is money to be made. Um, So to any young (laughs) black men and women who are listening, make sure you were paid what you were worth. I can tell you, Jason. uh, And let's just put it all out there, shall we? Since we're going (laughs) to since we're going to talk about the things I was offered a position in which I was replacing a, a white man. I was offered thirty five thousand dollars less than what he was earning. So why are you offering me the job? If you think I can do it better than him, if you think I should be doing it, if you want me to do it and you want to pay me $35,000 less than what he was earning, the offense of it all, the offense of it all. So that's my my salary push because we need more salary transparency through and through um, in the communities that we're building. But nonetheless, you will... As everyone has their own individual sort of lens with this work, as you show up and as you sit at your desk and figure out 
what does it even mean to be a major gift officer? What does it mean to be the social media manager or the marketing director for this mission? Find your thread of truth. Find the cause that you know matters. Um, find the people and the families and the staff that you know need some support because that's what has powered me. Okay. It's not the mechanics of this that, that should keep you up at night. I promise you it shouldn't. Okay. I've only got you for 10 more minutes. You've yeah. got to help me. You've got to help <laughs> me explain this story. Because I think you're going to, based on what you just described, I think you're going to, you're going to get it. You're going to get it probably better than I do. Help me fill in the blanks. About eight, about seven or eight years ago, I was working on an, I was working on a search job for basically a, 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 we'll call it a, it was a major gifts role. It was what I call an outside cat. So it was a small organization that needed somebody to basically would be donor facing work. I don't like calling the major gifts officers because major, but it's the idea of the outside cat is the person who's not an inside cat. They spend more time out in the field rather than in house. And one of my clients calls them outside cat. So, mm-hmm. but but that's what I that's what I was filling the job for. And I was talking to a woman who was working for a, a, a university in um, who wanted to get it wanted to get out in the field and do this type of work. And I'm talking to a woman and over time I figured I basically figured, and I'd never met with her in person, but I figured out pretty quickly that she was a black woman and she was basically administrating two or three white guys, major gifts officers traveling around the country. And she was mm-hmm. basically scheduling meetings on their behalf, but she was having direct interaction with the donors, scheduling the meetings, building relationships with these major donors. Mm-hmm. And then the white guys like me got the privilege of hopping on the planes that mm-hmm. she scheduled the trips mm-hmm. and they got to go collect the hundred thousand dollar checks. Yep. And I bet, I bet she was making half what those fellows were making. If right. That, yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay. Well, yeah. If that, right. Right. I could not, I could not, she was comfortable in that spot. She was comfortable in that spot, but she was also the person who was basically what she was explaining to me. She was, she was, she was describing to me that she was comfortable in that role and I could not compel her to go to move into a a different type of position. But I was absolutely convinced that she was doing the hard work, getting paid half as much. And these white fellas were getting all the praise for basically bringing home the check. And she was interacting with these donors on the telephone as she described it to me in ways that, you know, she'd call a donor in Boston to schedule Jerry's meeting or whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know exactly what's going on. Help me fill in the blanks on what's going on there. And and are you convinced that she she was comfortable because she told you such? Yeah, she she went she wouldn't apply for it. somehow or another. I connect. I had advertised the job mm-hmm. somehow or another. She reached out to me and said I'm interested. Mm-hmm. When I described the job to her, it might have been the locate, you know, the transition or something, et cetera, et cetera. But her her her. I think probably what what bothered me the most is I couldn't quite discern whether and still to this day, and that's why I'm asking you the question. Yeah, I, I don't know if she how how much of the how. <laughs> How much of how much how aware was she aware that she was doing eighty percent of the work? Mm. Well, mm. I don't know this wonderful woman, um, yeah, right, but right, I can sure. offer. I mean, Gerald. Here, let me yeah. offer one more thing. Gerald Panis, one of our gurus, our wizard, says that getting the meeting is eighty percent of the job. He said he said he said that decades ago, and we know that. So if eighty percent of the job is getting the meeting, shouldn't she be getting 80% of the credit for whatever check comes home? I guarantee you she wasn't getting that. You know, <laughs> I, I I have a lot of thoughts. I have primarily... This is another episode. <laughs> I have primarily a thought of um, how often we're invited or we speaking on behalf of whatever black women relate to this, not the entire contingent of us. Um, There's a shrinking that occurs because there's no safety. If there's forward movement. Yeah. Um, There is a safety in staying situated, um, choosing to not use your voice, choosing to not sort of, if she was reached out and was interested that's great. That shows there was an ambition, but there yes. all, that also needs to be supported with the value that it's not going to be a setup for failure. And right. if there's no right. evidence, if they're comfortable in an environment where she's doing this work and not getting any credit, then that's speaking volumes of what you think of what I bring to the table. Um, 
ideally someone is looking at you and always encouraging greater development and greater, you know, progression so that there's an alignment. Nobody was doing that. So you internalize that, then this is what I'm capable of. And I've seen that with women across the board Um, and organizations go back to people and say, well, why didn't you want to be a manager? You made it very clear what you thought. (laughs) You made it very clear what you thought of what I was capable of. But as a black woman navigating predominantly white nonprofit spaces, whether or not they are black serving, um, there is the the lack of, hmm, let me reframe that. There's a need for continued education. That's my very PC way of putting that. (laughs) There's a need for continued education and individual journeys towards diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the other way of saying that is that it's a freaking mess when you get to the top of some of these organizations. And sometimes the best thing you can do is opt out and not involve yourself in somebody else's game. Because what she possibly saved herself from is some of the emotional, spiritual trauma and toxicity that many of us have experienced. And you end up with a higher salary, sure, but you end up with more gray hairs also. Right, right. Do, do Going back to job description, last question. Do do black women, you're a black, do black women, I've said this to black women, for example, owe themselves donor facing work and they owe their, do, do you owe your cohort, your P, do you owe yourself donor facing work? I understand you're getting really paid in the advancement services department, but that's not where you're going to, that, that's not, in my opinion, it, gosh, I'm going to get probably some heat for this, but I don't think that's where they're going to sort of bring that's not where they're going to sort of bring life into this conversation and awareness of, I think, the tension that is sort of emerges from a conversation like you and I are having. Do they owe themselves donor-facing work, like apply for the major gifts roles over the, the advancement services roles? I think the question assumes that donor-facing work is inherently valuable and impactful and not harmful. And I would venture to the latter. Of the experiences that you could have, there is change to be made, but it also means you have some really hard conversations. And um, But are you going to have those hard conversations sitting in front of a computer doing advancement services? Black women owe themselves peace. <laughs> we owe ourselves okay. rest. All right. We owe ourselves um, community. And we owe ourselves fellowship. And we owe ourselves uh, the ability to use our voices without shrinking. Um, I don't... I. To your to your question, as it's framed, I had a supervisor ask me once, well, how did it feel? You got to talk to so-and-so. It was a major donor. It felt like I was talking to anybody else at a, butt stop, uh, at a bus stop. Um, I don't bring a celebration of wealth or of wealth as expertise, of wealth as a win to this work. I just don't. I'm not capable of doing that. And so for me... If anything, the the harm that's baked into some of these donor facing conversations where you can have someone writing you a big check and also telling you all of the reasons why they're problematic. I don't want that for black. I don't want that for anybody, but I especially don't want it for people that look like me. So you still want me out there in the field collecting the check? (laughs) Um, I want the check going where it needs to go. And I want you to gather your people in service to the conversation See, that needs to be tension. had. I, I'm not I, saying that we aren't, I'm not saying that we should not be in those positions and that we won't be right. in those positions because right. there are many of us doing incredible things in that line of business. In that field, right. But I'm saying that if it goes unchecked and if it's a part of a team or an environment that is already not within a safe space or already within a nonprofit that has a toxic, under-resourced, unsupported culture, that gets very expensive very quickly. That is the the emotional, spiritual, and and sort of professional cost for people that is more difficult to count. Um, So it's it's more than who's out there soliciting that that big money or writing that grant. The whole context has to be accounted for. Okay. I just go back to an environmental critique. I think you've got an old white guy who's not the monster that we think he is. I think you've got an old white guy in New York City right now who's not the monster that Vu or somebody else would paint him to be. And if you go take him out to lunch and instead of painting that paint, you know, putting lipstick on that pig, you give him the truth, he'll listen to you. And I think with me, I think when I show up, I just look like a charming salesman that he hired to run his company. You see the difference? And so I think you get an opportunity to tell him the truth. 
And I think he, I think he's also 65 to 70 years old, and he's completely aware <laughs> that people that look like you are going to start running this country in more meaningful ways than, than perhaps, or we're going to equal, equal the playing field, whatever the hell we got to say. But I, I just think that he's ready to hear from you just as much. He's tired. Honestly, I think he's tired of hearing from those three major gifts officers that the gal in Texas was flying around the country. And I think you'll give him that truth. uh, Could be, but I thank you for bringing it back (laughs) to my initial opinion about truth telling. It could be, but if it only took black people, if it only took James Baldwin and other people that have been telling the truth for years and years to tell the truth, then we wouldn't still be in this place. Okay, so do you want us to get back on the plane together? Do you want me, me on the plane? <laughs> I'm together? not going back to Major We're talking to the 28 year old. We're talking to yeah. the 28 year old black woman who's working at the the children's, you know, recovery center, whatever the hell we're talking about right. in Chicago. What is what's the role she's aspiring to be in next? I just, you know, I I can't prescribe Jason that that's the only way to have an impact within philanthropy. I can't, I can't, I can't jump on that. I and I don't want to sign people up to if that is what you're passionate about. If you really are into relationship building and you want to change hearts and minds through that lane, by all means, knock yourself out, young lady and young man. Keep (laughs) going for it. But that's not the only way to be impactful in this field. Um, Yeah, it's not. So, April, we. as I shared with you before I hit the record button, we get a lot of follow-up uh, on your side of the uh, – in, in your seat uh, just as much as we get follow-up on my side of the seat. Somebody's going to want to reach out to you and continue the conversation as they might with me. Um, how would you suggest that they do that? And the other thing is, is I know that you – as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, we talked a little bit about that you had started a consultancy, and I want to hear about that, and uh, and then we'll get you out of here. Absolutely. So Philanthropy for the People, we're centering equity in fundraising and grant making, um, whether that is your giving strategy design, whether it's an equity audit, um, whether it's looking at how you can apply some of the community-centric fundraising practice principles to your development team. Uh, that is the work that I'm currently doing. You can find me on LinkedIn, on Instagram at Philanthropy for the People or April C. Walker on LinkedIn. Um, you're welcome. Well, yeah, welcome to email. Hello at AprilCWalker.com. And and I'm happy to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening in, folks. April, it's been a pleasure to have you on here. You are always welcome back. Thank you much, Jason. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.